I'm Professor Shane Greenstein, and you're listening to the Harvard Business School Digital Initiative Seminar, a premier seminar series that hosts thinkers and scholars who are pushing forward research on the digital transformation of the economy by conducting and connecting with cutting-edge leaders, equipping leaders, and building community, the Digital Initiative seeks not just to study, but also to shape digital transformation. To learn more, check out digital.hbs.edu. Okay, um, how are we doing? We're, we're ready to get started. Uh, so uh, it's a pleasure to have Simon DeBeo uh, from uh, Carnegie Mellon here to uh, speak with us. As usual, we go around the room uh, to introduce ourselves and our background and help our speaker appreciate. Uh, <laughs> oh, let's double check. It's all working. Everything's working? Yep. Okay. Uh, and, and so he knows who we are and, and uh, we kind of know who we are as well. But uh, <laughs> we should, nonetheless, we should do that. So uh, I'm Shane Greenstein from the Technology Operations and Management Unit. Take it away. Uh, I'm Daniel Brown, I'm the first year here in the strategy unit. Frank Nagel, I'm a professor in the strategy unit. Josh Wurtzin, a professor in the negotiations, uh, organizations, and markets unit. Otan Bon, Dr. Tanin Tang. Shrey Saker, postdoc. Diane Williams, I already introduced myself, a computer scientist and tech entrepreneur, alumna of MIT Sloan and Harvard. Hi, Tommy Pan Fang, third year student in the Tom unit. Hi, I'm Becky Karp. I'm a PhD student at BU in the Strategy and Innovation Department. I'm Dave Hong, I'm the Director of the Digital Initiative here at HPS. I'm Do-Yoon Kim, I'm a student in the Strategy Unit. Cyrus Ruby, fourth year in the Strategy Unit. I'm Eric Mankin, Senior Researcher in OB. Michael L. Seka, a third year marketing student. Hi, I'm Misha Toplitsky, a postdoc at HPS. Okay. All right, very good. All right, well, thank you um, for saying hello. Um, I'm going to talk today, uh, I, I come out of the quantitative sciences, actually my PhD is in physics many, many years ago, and I got bitten with the data science bug. I did animals and um, microbes for a while, but humans are a lot easier to study because you all um, keep data for us. You don't have to, I don't have to watch you, you're voluntarily giving it up all the time, so well done. Um, uh, I, I begin with this picture, so these, these two things, somebody asked me what these are. Um, I shouldn't have these. These were stolen from the University of Michigan's Archaeological uh, Museum. I don't have them anymore. I had to give them back. Um, these are called beveled rim bowls. Uh, they're about 5,000 years old. And they're our first uh, archaeological evidence of state formation. So this was how you got paid when you were you know, sort of dragged in, in you know, ancient Mesopotamia to build something. Uh, at the end of the week, you take your bowl, these are all uniform size, you take your bowl and they fill it up with barley to the brim and then you, that's, you take that home. Um, if, you, uh, 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 if you broke your bowl for some reason, it was really easy to make a copy, you just borrow a friend's bowl, you dig a hole in the sand, you, you know, put some clay in and punch it out and kind of smooth it around. Um, what's nice is uh, that means that you can actually, you can put your finger in the bottom of the bowl, and you can feel the knuckle prints of this person from 5,000 years ago, which is a very spooky experience. Um, these are kind of the junk mail of archaeology. There's like thousands, of, like wherever you dig, you find thousands of them in the area. Um, and I suppose the story is that it took only 5,000 years to get from here to here. And I'm going to try to tell you a story about how that happened. 
but more important, I'm going to tell you hopefully what's coming next. Uh, so um, this work is with a whole bunch of people at Carnegie Mellon and also Indiana, where I used to be. Um, and I'll talk about the work of all these people and a little bit of the theory um, with the new student I have, Zach, at, at CMU. Uh, theory and uh, empirics, we have a very permeable boundary. Uh, what's nice is that our theories are quite simple, and the things that we say are the critical objects of our theories are actually pretty easy to measure directly. So um, what we're measuring, the, the particular numbers that we're measuring, we think actually have direct neural correlates, for example. Um, the secret to how we got from Mesopotamia to Harvard Business School is evolution, cultural evolution. Um, you may know this book. This is a lovely book by Joel Moker. I guess we have some people in innovation. So Joel is telling a story about what happened uh, in the uh, Industrial Revolution, particularly in Britain. Uh, what's nice about this book is an early chapter on sort of a crash course in cultural evolution, which was first actually invented by um, a guy called Rob Boyd, who I used to know at Santa Fe. Um, so there's a whole stack of things that tell you why somebody might observe some practice and pass it on, right? So we have frequency bias, where you copy things, you spread things that other people are, are using. Velocity bias, which I guess is what you guys do, which is whatever's rising quickly, you try and get it before it's common. Model bias, you copy um, fancy people, like I guess at Harvard. Utility bias, it's rare, but you copy things that work. Um, so fundamentally, these all end up being biases that are generated by what you see and how you process what you see. So a big chunk of cultural evolution actually ends up being about the human brain and how the human brain processes information. Uh, it's tricky to get across how powerful evolution is, right? It made us, it made uh, our brains. We draw about 100 watts total to power our brains. They work very, very well. We've never been able to replicate it. We may never do so. Uh, if you want a fun read, uh, David Brin is a science fiction author. This book, Existence, is, is the whole story of existence is uh, the ways in which cultural evolution powers life. Um, so uh, one of the things that happens in the digital era is a rapid and massive acceleration of time scale. So this is the first issue of Wired magazine. Perhaps some of you have it. Um, the time scale at which you would encounter information and then pass it on, on the order of a month, right? So you get wired, you might write in to wire, write letter to wire, Dan, do you have a letter in wired? <laughs> um, you might write in, so it's sort of a time scale of a month, right? Um, and that's, you know, in the modern era of digital printing and um, mass acceleration, or sorry, of, of uh, mass distribution. Um, what I'm going to tell you is that uh, cultural evolution now has sped up so much, in fact, that um, in the current era, our time scale is now about a minute, right? Somebody posts something on the internet, you can see and respond to it roughly as fast as you can type, right? Um, I think we underestimate this, right? So that acceleration factor is on the order of 10 or 100,000. If we had sped up biological evolution by the same time scales, we would have gone from dinosaurs to Jeff Goldblum in 100 years, right? So things are going really, really quickly. Um, we are experiencing a renaissance of ideas, some for good and some for evil. I'll talk a little bit about both. We're experiencing a renaissance of ideas that happen uh, at timescales so quick that cultural evolution is now sufficiently fast 
that whatever we see tomorrow may be completely unpredictable from what we see today. All right, so um, biological evolution and cultural evolution, uh, they have one profound similarity, right? So um, here's a plant, right? If the plant wants to make a copy of itself, right, it can't sort of jump into the 3D printer and, and run a copy. It has to pass all of the information, all the algorithms, all the data necessary to make a copy of itself through what we call the genetic bottleneck, right? So this, it, it goes through your gametes or the plant's gametes, and out the other side, it makes a new plant. Now, what that means is that an enormous chunk of the structure of this plant is defined by how much we have to squeeze down through a very, very narrow channel. You can't understand evolution, at least evolution in the new synthesis era, without understanding the basic properties of how this part happens, right? Darwin knew this and this, but it wasn't until, well, Crick and Watson and Franklin that we understood the nature of this thing in the middle. The same thing is true of culture. Um, we, uh, you know, like a cultural practice, like a copy of Wired magazine, can't, again, jump up on a photocopier and reach around and copy itself. In order for this practice, this idea, this, this set of patterns of behavior, in order for that to be replicated, in order for that to be passed along, it passes through a bottleneck as well. It passes through a cognitive bottleneck. So everything that happens in cultural evolution is defined by what happens at the individual level. Every single thing that gets passed is passed by you typing, speaking, behaving, choosing in the same way that everything that happens in biological evolution is defined by the copying and production of proteins by your ribosomes, okay? So the cognitive bottleneck is weird. It's very, very strange. Um, and I'm gonna give you a sense of it. I'm gonna play with your visual system first. Um, one of the basic problems that we have in understanding cultural evolution is that we don't see things as they are. We see things as they expect to be, fundamentally. We're fundamentally novelty resistant. We throw out differences and we replace them with what we expect to see. So here's a really simple example. If you are a neurotypical person, uh, you will see square A and square B as very different shades, very different luminescence, right? This one to me looks lighter. Um, <clears throat> you know what's coming, right? There are in fact exactly the same shape, right? So what's going on? Your brain is uh, getting photons on your retina, and it's correctly registering that these are, in fact, the same shades. As that gets propagated up your visual system, your brain says, you know what, that's not important, right? What we need to tell you is if this square is in shadow, and it's the same luminescence as this square, it means that if you yank that cylinder away, it would be lighter in the same amount of light. So uh, your brain is constantly confabulating. It's giving you useful information or information that it thinks will be useful to you. Uh, we've learned this a little bit uh, in the machine learning era. So I'll, I'll tell you, this is perhaps the reason that, uh, uh, that, uh, machine, uh, that machine learning works so well. Uh, this is something called an autoencoder. So an autoencoder is one of the basic uh, units that you would learn about. Uh, what you do with this autoencoder, I'll tell you what this, this architecture means in a second is that in the input here, you might have like a thousand inputs, right? You might have a thousand, I guess you guys would call them independent variables, right? They get stuffed in here. That 1,000 independent variables might get squeezed down to let's say 100 at this second layer here. So you've, you're tossing out 90% of the information. Right? That 100 
set of uh, variables might then get shuffled down to something as small as 10. So again, you throw out 90% of the 90%. Uh, this image is a colleague of mine, Dave Feldman. So one of the things they like to do with this is uh, those 100 variables at the input level will be, let's say, pixels in an image. Uh, the autoencoder is kind of a clever thing because what it does is it takes 1,000 down to 100 down to 10, and then you say, okay, tough guy, right? Take 10 up to 100 up to 1,000, and what I want you to do is to match the original image as closely as possible. Now, that should not be possible. You've thrown out nearly everything in that image, and yet it turns out, you say, look, I want you to match the original one. It turns out that it can do pretty well. And the reason it can do pretty well is that there's an enormous amount of structure in the world, right? Pictures of people are made out of lines and shadows and areas of color. You have eyes that tend to be in the same place. You have a nose, hopefully, between your eyes. And what happens at this central layer here is that you've produced a reduced description of the real world. Somewhere in the center here is, and at least in machine language, something like, Dave is kind of a white guy, he tilts his head a little bit, he tends to wear shirts, you know, he has brown eyes. And what you can do then, and you've probably seen this, these fake faces, is you can forget about this input here and just kind of stick your finger and sort of twiddle the neurons and give it hallucinations, and so in fact you can create Daves that never existed. So you can go online and say, is this a real person? And it will generate lots of fake Daves for you, or fake George Clooney's, if that's your thing. Uh, here's another example. This is the Ponzi illusion. Uh, again, if you're a reasonably normal person, you will see this line here as wider than this line, right? You see what's coming, which is that they're in fact exactly the same length, right? This. And just to sort of uh, reinforce that. Why? Again, your brain is giving you useful information because it says, look, if you have convergent lines, right, that you think ought to be parallel, that means if you see something here, it probably means that it's further away, right? So we call this an ecologically valid prior. If you didn't see this line here as being longer than this line here, like you might get hit by a bus, right? So you see, right, this bus, like this line here, right, you better remember that when that comes towards you, it's, it's probably going to be, if you're here, you're in trouble, right? So your brain is, again, giving you useful information as opposed to correct information. Um, I'll do one last version of this, so you have your handout. Right. So um, start with this side here. Has anyone seen their blind spots? So start with this side here. Put the X on the left. Okay. Close your left eye, and with your right eye, look at the X, and move this in and out. And for me, somewhere around here, up to about here, that dot on the right disappears. Yeah. People see that? Right? This is pretty weird, right? It's because, right, sorry, your eye is terribly designed. Um, if you're in your iPhone, right, you have the light-sensitive pixels and the wires come out the back. Unfortunately, we were built incorrectly. The wires come out the front and kind of snake around. And then you have to, have, you have to plug it in, and there's this gap in your optic disc where uh, there are no light-sensitive photons. Uh, this disappears pretty well. You don't notice that it's gone, right? So if I'm looking directly here, right? Somewhere around, I can't see anything here, but my brain is like, don't worry about it, right? You've never noticed your blind spot. And just to give you a sense, I just, I took a newspaper off the street in, in, in Harvard Square. So do the same thing. Close your left eye with your right, look at the X. 
at some point, the dot will disappear, but behind the dot, it's like, don't worry, it's some Chinese stuff, right? Don't, don't stress out. So your brain, again, is, is telling a story about what it expects to see, right? There is like, in that dot, is just fake Chinese, right? It's like some stereo, I mean, unless you speak Chinese, in which case you'll, it, you'll fill it in with something else. But if you're not familiar with Chinese, it'll, it's like a bunch of lines and it's sort of scattered in a certain pattern that uh, Chinese often is. Right? You can do this trick with anything. Like you can do this with like um, a bureaucratic form or even if you've written a book, your own book. <laughs> All right, so um, as, as to be clear, right, what I'm really interested in is this process here about your brain reconstructing the world. To me, that is, in fact, the barrier for newness. That's the only thing that keeps our culture mildly inertial, right? The fact that we constantly discard weird things without even noticing it, right? So if you guys were to do something weird right now, I'd probably just keep going. Don't try it. Um, that led me over the years to um, sort of object to one of the main things that we do in, well, in the social and decision sciences, certainly in economics, uh, which is to, uh, to uh, reject rational choice theory. So I'll give you a crash course in rational choice theory. I think this is dualism, but I think it's fundamentally unscientific, right? But anyway, here's how it goes, right? What you know plus what you want, and you know, if you're advanced, what you know you often represent in some Bayesian fashion, right? Probabilities of things happening. What you want is represented in terms of utility theory. I call this dualism because this means that there's two quantities that matter, utils, whatever that is, and bits, right? So this is epistemic. This is an epistemic quantity. This is a sort of desiring or wanting quality. So if you know what you know and what you want, then out the other side, you can predict what you do. So this is rational choice. Uh, it's also a big chunk of, of classical economics. Um, I, again, I think this is weird, right? I have no idea what this is. I don't know what it means to, to sort of want something. I, I don't, I, when I introspect on this, I don't really have wants. Um, here's another way to say it, like, what do you want? Well, I, I guess I want what I want. It's a little bit like in biology, you say I'm, I'm fit because I reproduce, and I reproduce because I'm fit. There's something circular here. So um, I'll propose a slightly different model of the world that's uh, fundamentally uh, an epistemic drive. So I'm going to throw out utils, and I'm only going to give you bits. I'm going to describe you as an information-seeking machine. So now, and this is, OK, this is monism, right? So well done, Spinoza, the beginning of science. So what you know, in fact, gives you what you want. Right? And so now, in fact, there's only one input to the prediction of what you do. And I'm willing to say that there are certain things that you probably don't want to do, like walk in front of a car. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm willing, or you eat, right? So I'm willing to say there's some kind of external forcing, but that your desires are actually basic and shared by everybody around you. What makes us different is not our preferences, but our states of knowledge. So um, it, what we will do, in other words, is work entirely with a representation of people's knowledge states and not try to stick in anything to do with what they actually want. Um, you should feel free to object at any point. Uh, so I, I said, OK, we only have one quantity. It's the bit. Um, I will now tell you what a bit is. Does anybody know? Has anybody? I won't ask you to do this, but has, has anybody encountered information theory? Okay, this will be fun. So Shane, you're gonna, we, I'm going to ask you to play a game with me here. I don't know if you've seen this. So um, here's a, a crash course in information theory. There's a game called 20 Questions, sometimes called Animal, Vegetable, Mineral. Uh, the game of 20 Questions is there's a sort of child and there's a parent. 
Um, the parent has something in mind and the child has to figure out what it is by asking questions that have only a yes or no answer, right? So, um, okay, Shane, will you, will, you, will you play this with me? Okay, so I have something in my mind. Uh, and you want me to figure out what it is? Yes. Uh, is it an animal? Yes. Uh, is, is it bigger than a person? Yes. Uh, um, is it a mammal? Yes. Uh, oh. uh, boy. Um, mammal. Does it live in Africa? Yes. Ooh. Ooh. And bigger than a person. Is it an uh, elephant? Yes. Wow. Wow. All right. Well done. You're the, lucky. Yeah. You're the first person to get that. Uh, oh, wow. wow. Yeah. And all um, I mean, completely. I've been, <laughs> <laughs> wow. All right. There's a new theory here. <laughs> this, this is amazing. No, I know. Um, so what's what's funny? Actually, there's a couple things. I'll, I'll I'll get to what you did in a moment. Um, so this this game is it's a game called Twenty Questions. Famously, this was a game on Polish communist television in the eighties. So they they bring in um, you know it's like the plumbers union would come in. It's like okay, comrade, I'm thinking about a about something, and they do the yes no question game. And the joke is, is that this had to be canceled when the Polish Mathematicians Union showed up. So they began by saying, is the first letter of the word you're thinking of, does it fall in the first half of the alphabet or the second? Okay, the first. Does it fall in the first half of the first half? No, okay. Does it fall in the first half of the second half of the first half? Yes. So uh, this, in fact, turns out to be a really efficient way to solve the problem. Uh, if you zoom, if you sort of mentally zoom in here, uh, you'll see, in fact, that there's more stuff, there's more letters in the first half than the, or there's more in the first half of the alphabet than the second, so you might actually want to not split it right in the middle, but say, you know, is it up to, you know, Q or something. Uh, that should give you a sense is that there are better and worse ways to play this game. So it so turns out, and this has to be the case mathematically, that there is a set of optimal questions that you can ask. Uh, here's an example. So imagine you're playing this uh, game against your dad. Uh, your parental unit number one. And there's only three things in his head. <laughs> Sorry, tree, bird, and car. He thinks about cars half the time, trees a quarter of the time, and birds a quarter of the time. If your goal is to get this game over as soon as possible, what is the question you should begin with? Is it a car? Mm -hmm. <laughs> right, because half the time, right, the game is over, you won, right? Yeah. If the answer is no, now you have to do another round. Okay, is it a bird, right? And you can all say, is it a tree? And at that point, you've now split it. So half the time the game is over in one question, half the time the game is over in two questions. So on average, it takes one and a half questions to get the information out of your father's head. Right. Uh, it turns out you don't have to, in order to compute that number, all you need is your dad's state of mind, what he tends to think about, what he tends to have in mind. You don't have to build this. You don't have to figure out the optimal script. You just plug it into, this is the one formula of the talk. Uh, the, you just plug in the uh, probabilities of the different things inside the person's head and put this in this formula. Introduced in 1945 by Claude Shannon, it's sometimes called entropy or uncertainty uh, or uh, information. So this is my favorite quantity. Um, if you're a computer scientist, you may know this as Huffman encoding. So your brain, or sorry, your brain, your computer, when you zip a file, basically creates the optimal script for figuring out what's in the file, and that's what gets transmitted. Uh, we'll need one more idea, 
which is the idea of suboptimal questions. So if you think of that optimal question tree for your father as some representation of what's going on in his head, of some encoding, and in fact we think that the way we encode the world has some of these same properties, if you now imagine you've taken your father's question script and you go to your mother, and your mother has slightly different states of mind, right? So, okay, your dad is an Uber driver, your mother is a theoretical ecologist, uh, she thinks about trees half the time, right? Uh, birds, a quarter of the time, car, a quarter of the time. Now, if you were good, right, you could build an optimal question script for your mother that is as good as it would be for your father. In fact, the sort of uncertainty in your mom is just about the same as the uncertainty in your dad. Uh, however, if you take the script, if you take the model of your father and bring it to your mother and try to use it, you will be inefficient. You will not be as good as processing that information. And so, in fact, if you use the dad encoding, you're a quarter of the question bad. Right? So you're going to take sort of 12.5% you know, more time on average to get the information out of your mother. Again, you don't have to build the optimal question script. You compute something called Kolbach-Leibler divergence, where here this P is your mother and this Q is your father. So this was not Claude Shannon, Kolbach and Leibler were cracking codes in uh, World War II for the Allies. Uh, there are many different ways to think about Kolbach-Leibler divergence. If you're a computer scientist, it's coding failure. If you're a cognitive scientist, it's cognitive surprise, expectation violation. Uh, we're able to do eye tracking experiments. So imagine that you see a video, you see a movie that's playing in front of you. Uh, you can build a model of all the different patches on that screen. So you might say, what's the probability that the colors are this, that, or the other thing? As that movie plays, right, the patches will change. Some patches will be pretty stable, so your coding that worked at time T1 will work pretty well for time T2. In other words, the Kolbach library divergence is small. Other parts of the film will have large Kolbach library divergence from one time to the other. You track where people look, and that's exactly where people look, right? We don't look at the thing, uh, you know, we don't look at the thing that we think is cool or sexy. We don't have some preference where, in fact, our eyes are automatically drawn to the parts of the world that violate our theories in that case. All right, so now, now we're going to, that's the theoretical part. Now we'll do the empirical part. Are there any questions? Yes? So uh, the thing you said last, does that not um, go against the thing you said earlier about us being uh, against new information, against surprise? Yeah. That's true, well spotted. Um, we are not entirely novelty rejection machines. Uh, in the case of movies, there's some entertainment value here. And in fact, we do have a bimodal response. So I'll tell you a little bit about how that works in a moment. Well, um, in maybe 20 minutes. So, but you're well spotted, you're right to say it. So what we're gonna do here is use Kolbach-Leibler to study pattern making and pattern breaking. So if you imagine this is you know, the system at time t1, at time t2, at time t3, this might be, for example, the probability distribution over the words in an online forum. It could be the probability distribution over you know, the colors that you expect to see in a painting or the complexity of the painting, something like that. What we're going to do is measure from one moment to the next the spikes or the decrease in this pattern breaking measure. So we're going to take Kolbach Library divergence and we're going to measure that. So sure, given the text I've just encountered, how surprised am I by what happens next? 
So this is the text version of that cool movie eye tracking experiment. Uh, we had to give it a name, so we called it Novelty. Uh, we introduced this, actually our first study of this was in, in uh, something we call uh, culture analytics or digital humanities. Uh, we use this to study Charles Darwin's reading habits. So we have, in fact, Darwin was like an early life hacker, so he kept records of all the books he read. And so we can study, for example, okay, he reads this book, how much does it break the patterns of the books that came before? And that gives us a sense of whether Darwin is sort of focusing down, whether he's concentrating in some part of the scientific space, and when, in fact, he makes leaps somewhere else. Uh, the short and long of it there is that Darwin begins very focused. He spends most of his time centered around a set of problems in geology. It's only later in his career that he actually starts jumping out, sort of the opposite of what we tell grad students to do. Um, after the Darwin paper, uh, I worked with Alexander Barron, also an ex-physicist, and uh, we had this sort of challenge, right? So uh, we know, I hope I've sort of given you a sense of what novelty is. So let's say, again, you have these cultural practices like some distribution, some probability distribution, some model of the world at time t. Okay, how much is it broken by what's happening now? And Alexander sort of did the obvious thing, which is just flip it around, and we can also measure how surprising something is here, given what's going to come next. Okay, so this is a bit mysterious. Like, this direction is pretty easy to understand, but what's this direction? So we sort of you ponder this for a moment, and you say, okay, I, you know, I don't look like the future. If you go to your department chair, and your department chair says you don't look like the future of this department, that's a problem. Um, so we ended up calling it transience. If you look different from the future, it means that whatever you've done has died out. Whatever patterns you have tried to put in, whatever modifications you have made, actually get rejected. Right? So now we can measure two things. We can measure how new something is, and we can measure how persistent it is, or how transient it is. So, so is this like an evolutionary experiment that doesn't uh, persist? Yes, as a species. Exactly. Yeah. So it's uh, it's a mutation. A mutation right? that doesn't uh, uh, replicate. Doesn't replicate, right? So um, you know, if you if you have a dog and your dog has puppies and the puppies look like nothing you've ever seen, that's probably a bad thing for the puppies, right? Uh, we measured this, so we we just it's these tools are very simple. Uh, we measured this in a separate project to study the speeches of the French Revolution. So I'll introduce you to that in a moment. Um, just as a sort of warm-up, we had fun. I used to be, as I said, I used to be a physicist. I used to work in string theory and theoretical physics. Um, I took all of the papers that are published in high-energy physics from 1992 until the present day. We're able to do that because physicists got into the open science movement really, really early. And so, in fact, they're all publicly available, including the non-peer-reviewed ones and including early drafts. So you would upload your paper to what's called the archive server, uh, the Cornell, Paul Ginsberg. Uh, you'd upload your paper. When it got published, you would up, you know, upload the final version. And it gives us a window into how people are understanding what it means to do physics. Uh, here's just an example. So this is actually this is the paper. John Luke and I were grad students together back in the day. So we take all the papers, and now we have to build some kind of model of each paper. We have to represent it epistemically. Uh, many different ways to do it. So for example, a standard thing that people do is just do the word counts. So what's the probability that if you stick your hand in this paper and pull out a word, it's like, I don't know, um, singularity. Uh, to do this one, we use a slightly more sophisticated model called topic modeling. 
uh, which instead of counting individual words, tries to extract co-occurring word patterns and then looks at the presence and absence of the co-occurring word patterns. Uh, all you really need to know is that we've turned each paper into a probability distribution. So we can ask the same kind of, we can play 20 questions, and we can also say, I build my 20 question script for Jean-Luc's paper, and now, I don't know, Ed Witten writes a paper, and to what extent did Ed Witten break with Jean-Luc? So here's the, here's the outcome. Uh, on the x-axis here is novelty, and on the y-axis is transience. And each point here is a paper in our data. So, right, use your amazing, you know, R skills, right? Um, there is an incredibly tight relationship between how new you are and how likely you are to be forgotten, right? The newer you, and so this, I should, you know, I say this over and over again, right? Everybody thinks that what people want is the new. Almost all the new is rejected, right? This is how new you are. This is, I, I sort of emphasize this because actually it's a great, it's a great uh, example of how people reject information. When I give this talk and then the marketing people come up afterwards and they say, great, you know, how do I find like this, you know, that optimal point of newness? There's no optimal point of newness. If your goal is to survive, just be like everybody else. Okay, our appetite for the same. Yes. Yeah, have you ever seen the Jones and Uzi paper on novelty? Yeah. Yeah, which, which says also that the best, it's very similar, right? Mm -hmm. That you can't actually be too new that the most successful research is this combination of uh, using and citing a, oh. My computer's a little I funny should, here. You should be able to do it from over there. Oh. This is a repeated occurrence that our IT team spent two hours in Ah, there we go. Yeah. Ah, so, okay. Yeah, so Jones and yeah. Uzi yeah, have this finding that mm -hmm. the influential science mm -hmm. has enormous number, it, it's slightly different, but it has enormous foundation and tons of things it cites and has just a tiny bit of novelty. And yeah. what we regard as foundational almost never is born you know, high, in high novelty. It yeah. actually does get forgotten. I think, and, yeah. Right? That, yeah, that's yeah. consistent with it. Do you, do you, yeah, you, I'll, I mean, I'll, I'll, we'll do a couple examples here. So, do, yeah. Yeah, if you know, do you know their work? If you have yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, so we, yeah, I was up at, at, at Northwestern a while ago, and so this, obviously we sort of battled this one out. Um, I'll give you some, we disagree on some points, okay, and, we'll, yeah. and we'll see what happens, right? Um, the, you know, people sort of say, are, like, are you sure, right, that people want the same thing over and over? Um, like, don't we get bored? And the answer is no, right? We listen to the same Taylor Swift song over and over again. Yeah. Um, we see this on uh, online uh, forums. People will sometimes take a comment that's really popular, and just copy it so they get like the kudos or the, the praise for it. And people it sort of encounter the first one, read a bit more, encounter the second one, they just like it just as much, right? They liked it just as much as they did the first time. So like the first law of surprise, what is new is quickly forgotten. What hasn't been seen before won't be seen much again. If your dog gives birth to puppies that the vet has never seen before, this is a problem for the puppies. Uh, John Locke said this, people are not so easily got out of their old forms as some are apt to suggest. Uh, biology has talked about, there's something called the hopeful monster theory. Yes, ma'am. Just a question about this notion of surprise. Mm -hmm. Could a surprise be something that isn't new, but just is in somewhere I don't expect it to be? Um, yes. So one of our sort of, sort of hidden in this model yeah. is the idea of what you expect is based off of watching what you've seen before. In that case, what's new is also unexpected. 
So as a physicist, you grow up, you read lots of papers. So it's not just that it's broken with what's come before, but also with your own mental model. It could certainly be the case that uh, if you've never seen physics before, right, and you open a physics paper, you might have preconceptions about what happens in physics. And even though what you're reading is a totally normal physics paper, it might be very surprising to you. Like you think it's going to be about black holes and cats, and actually it turns out to be something else. So, um, okay, so obviously this can't be the whole story, or life would be pretty boring. Culture does move. There's an enormous inertia to it, right? So even though, okay, we have this first law of surprise, um, now let's look, right, let's look at these outliers. So let's look at the people who are high in novelty, but anomalously low in transience, right? So this, they take this point here. So let me just advance the slide here. Take this point here and click. What is it? It's this paper. I'm sure you'd be excited to read it. Um, it's, an, a, uh, it's one of the top 5% of the citations in the database, right? So uh, the gap, it so turns out, the gap from here to here is a very good measure of the social power you accumulate. The extent to which you're able to put new things into the system and to have those new things stick is the extent to which you accumulate the standard measures that are useful for, I don't know, getting tenure or getting the praise of, of others. We call that gap resonance, right? So novelty minus transience is resonance, the extent to which you're off that, off that angle there. Uh, we can look at this, okay, how do you use this, the joke, how do you use this to get tenure? Um, this is the top 1% of papers, and what I plotted here is the, uh, the relative, the sort of difference in surprise between the normal papers and that top 1% of the papers. So if you look backwards, these papers are surprising, given what's come before. And if you look forward, they're uh, unsurprising, given what's happened next. They're low transients, high novelty. And you can even look at this curve. You can look at the time scale. So if you want to really make it, um, you look backwards in time and sort of break with whatever was three or four years before and your reward comes maybe two years later. So now you can time it perfectly. Uh, so first law of surprise, what is new is quickly forgotten. Second law of surprise is that the system honors the new, right? This is a high risk strategy, but if you want to succeed, at least in physics, and I'll give you some, uh, uh, some other examples in a moment, if you want to succeed, you have to be out here. So I think the reason people often talk about this zone, they often say, you know, this zone of optimal surprise, right? Here's surprise and here's win. Right? They often think like, oh, there's some, you know, don't be like this, don't be like this, be somewhere in the middle here. I think what they're secretly doing is convolving two things, mm -hmm. right? Surprise and risk tolerance, right? In fact, it's like this, and it's just like, how much do you want to gamble, right? So again, like the marketing, you know, people always say this is inverted U curve. Uh, they may in fact be wrong, and so in fact we find not an inverted U, but a U, and I'll give you evidence for that in a moment. Uh, okay, that's high energy physics, that's string theory. Um, let's just do this again with, so it turns out, the French Revolution. Uh, so the French Revolution, it was like the American Revolution, but it went drastically wrong. Um, and uh, this is the sort of early part of the French Revolution. Uh, the king wants to raise taxes. He needs to convene. He's trying to figure out how to do it. He can't, he can't get the, the uh, consensus among his advisors to do it. So what he does is convene something called the Estates General. Uh, the States General has three groups, uh, the, uh, the uh, clergy, the aristocracy, and third estate. No one really knows what the third estate is. It's probably like you guys, doctors and lawyers and professors. So they, he convenes this thing. They, uh, everybody from all over France sends a representative. They get to Paris, 
Uh, no one really knows what to do. The last time it was convened was 160 years beforehand. They get there and they decide to hold a revolution. Uh, this is uh, what's called the tennis court oath. The king locks the third estate out of the seminar room and they convene in the tennis courts or I guess the squash courts nearby and they pledge to uphold the principles of the revolution. Right? So uh, what we're gonna do is we're gonna look at these individuals and look at their novelty and transience and resonance curves. So how do we do this? Well, fortunately, the French government, in a fit of sort of nationalistic pride, digitized the records of all of the speeches made in the parliament itself. So in fact, we have a transcript going from the beginning of the revolution, the fall of the Bastille, all the way through to the terror when everybody starts killing each other. Uh, how did they do this? Did they, have sh they didn't actually even have shorthand very well. These were written down. Uh, in different places. So, for example, some of these speeches were pulled from newspaper reports at the time. Everybody wanted to know what was happening. Nobody could write it all down at once. And so in the 19th century, French historians got all the newspapers and uh, transcripts that they could and recombined them. So this is a reconstruction, but it's an incredibly detailed reconstruction. So let's zoom in here. Uh, here's like three speeches in a row. Uh, the French Revolution, it's boring. Most of it's incredibly boring. So the first thing they do is open with a discussion of the minutes, and they argue about the minutes for about an hour or so. Uh, so it's like faculty meeting, right? Um, so you know, I don't know if you speak French. It's like this incredibly fussy debate about exactly who was, you know, uh, like I'd like to call to your mind that the, your committee is recalled because you've decreed the alternative. Um, there are some fun parts. So this is um, a sort of battle that happens. Uh, I'll read this to you. Musher Malloway says, I want to speak on this topic. And a bunch of people say, order, order. And somebody else says, you don't have the right to speak right now. A third person says, you know, Mr. President, the guy organizing me, Mr. President, you're really, you're really bad about this. So I want to object to how you're running things. Uh, the first guy says, I just have four things to say. Right? And it goes on and on and on. And at some point, right, people start yelling at each other. So we even have the yelling. And at the end, the president says, if the discussion will continue, Robespierre has the floor. So Robespierre turns out to be a key feature in the revolution. Like, this is a terrible idea. Don't give Robespierre the floor. Um, so we're going to do the same thing we did with string theory. And now the units are not scientific papers, but speeches. And so for each speech, we're going to say, how much does it break with the past? And how much does it break with the future? We're going to measure novelty and transience. And here we go. Uh, sorry, here we go. Uh, it looks like string theory. So this is the density plot of the 40,000 speeches in our database. And again, right, the newer you are, the newer your speech is, the more likely it is to fade away. Right? It's again the same right. result as we get in the original case. And now, of course, we do the same thing. Like, who sits in that high resonance space, right? If you're a string theorist, you sit in that high resonance space, you're able to dominate the system. Uh, what we can do is roughly the same thing. So we'll look here, for example. So these are people doing things, giving speeches that are very new and yet don't disappear as fast as they ought to. That turns out to be the radical left, right? So Robespierre is, in fact, top of the list. He's next to a guy called Pétion de Villeneuve, who's sort of like his kind of frenemy, right? They both battle it out. Villeneuve disappears in the end, but both of them end up being the sort of kings of the parliament after the constitution is first written. And here's another interesting spot. Uh, this is the low novelty people. They say things that are very similar to what's come before. And it's also low transient. So you can think of these people as the guys who keep things on track. 
They're the inertial dampener of the system, and in fact, they turn out to be the right wing. So these are the conservative group that's trying to sort of argue people towards a constitutional monarchy if they hadn't written. Um, here's the tennis court oath. I can show you what these look like. So uh, let's take, so the, here's a terrible place to be, low novelty, high transients. Low novelty means you're saying everything that other people are saying, and as soon as you say it, they're like, great, let's move on, right? So here is, uh, this is Barnav. Uh, here he is. This is a guy, right? This is, this is low novelty, high transients. He's in the back. And uh, here is, I'm sorry, here is um, Robespierre, right? So this is, this is sort of a visual depiction of what these different parts of the, of the space look like. Uh, any questions on the French Revolution? Yes. So, so to make sure I understand the, the methodology here, you're looking at, at texts, mm -hmm. not um, at the authors of those texts. And the authors come out afterwards. Mm -hmm. So we, we pull all the speeches, right. and we say, okay, who's in this little quadrant here, who's making the speeches in that quadrant? Right, that's, that's, that's the result of the Exactly, analysis. yeah. But... In, in, when this is happening, maybe mm -hmm. I pay more attention because it's coming from Robespierre. Exactly. Yeah. So we don't know if it's the ideas. We don't know if it's social power. We don't know. Um, uh, Rebecca Spang, so we have a French historian on this paper, so never do a project without a domain expert. Right. And like this room is really large. So if you're a quiet person, no matter how good it is, no one's going to hear you, right? So like residents also could be literally like, oh, right? How you make it across the hall. Yes? Uh, can I bring back the graph? Yeah, yeah. For a second. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah. So is there is is there a sense in which you don't want to be too novel? So so I, I mean, your other graph had this characteristic also that mm -hmm. um, the highest resonance was somewhere in the middle, or uh, well, not at the extremes. Maybe I'll say that because mm -hmm. middle is perhaps not the right characterization. Right. But. Uh, so you don't want to be too novel relative to everyone else. So that's defining novelty in, in, the, in a social sense in terms of a population in which you're participating. Yeah, so, yeah. so your, your novelty is relative to the practices. This is the practices going on around you. Exactly. Are you going there in a moment? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think what you're saying is like, whoa, this is kind of better than maybe being out here. Yeah, but had there been a lot of people out there, mm -hmm. the better place might have been somewhere else. Um, so if there are people all the way out here, here. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So this is a really good question, right? So if everybody's novel, there's no coherence to the system, right? There's no actual kind of inertial center to what's going on. So in some sense, there's no revolution without these people, right? These are the people who are producing a consistent baseline on which others can innovate, right? So you couldn't actually have everybody out here. What you could have, and we tried to find this, what you could have is kind of curvature, right? So like novelty transients up, 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 and then it could kind of curve down. So if you're really novel, you're kind of even lower transients than you'd expect. We've never seen that curvature. We've, always, we've tried to find it like five different systems. We always see this really strictly linear relationship. That curve can tilt. It doesn't have to be one-to-one. -one. The slope can be slightly lower, which means that it's novelty accepting, slightly higher, which means it's novelty rejecting. But that linear fit works pretty well. Huh. Okay. So, okay, so what do we have so far? We have um, string theory of the French Revolution. Okay, fan fiction. Um, does anybody know what fan fiction is? Has anyone read fan fiction? Has anyone written fan fiction? This is, this is like the, the Harry Potter things that 
take off from the story. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So uh, this is sometimes called transformative works. Fan fiction is like the older, sort of less pretentious yeah. way to say it. Sometimes called transformative works. So what happens is that people encounter movies, uh, movie series, television series, like, I don't know, Firefly or Buffy. Um, they, they become enamored of the characters. The characters are well structured. They, uh, we, they sort of learn how plots work. And what they do is they write stories that expand upon the universe that that author's created. So Harry Potter's a great example. Yeah. Uh, J.K. Rowling is really positive about this phenomenon. It technically violates copyrights. Uh, so it used to be sort of suppressed. If it was ever discovered right. online, it was suppressed. J.K. Rowling now permits it. Um, some of the older fantasy writers uh, have come along for the there's writers as well. There's a huge community in the Star Wars world exactly. around this, and there's a big fight with the Star Wars community. Lucas hates about, it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Lucas hates it. Star Trek loves it. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I did actually, years ago, I did a qualitative study of fan fiction. People tend to think of it as this very conservative genre. George Martin um, uh, says no one should do this. Um, if you look at actually what people are doing, it turns out to be quite radical. So uh, they're often a very strong erotic component to these stories. Uh, so for example, early fiction used to be called slash fiction because the title on the bulletin board would be, you know, a continuation of Star Trek, Kirk slash Spock, which means Kirk and Spock fall in love. Um, here's, um, uh, I worked with uh, uh, Elise Jing at, uh, at Indiana on this project and YY, uh, her other advisor. Um, so I said, great, just scrape all this um, from a site called Archive of Our Own. That's a big collection of it. Um, and I said, well, great, what do you got? And she said, well, you know, I, I scraped a bunch of stuff, you know, Sherlock um, and Star Trek, all these things, and I have 90,000 short stories. I said, that's great, right? Um, that's enough uh, for a database. And she says, no, I have 90,000 short stories solely extending the particular universe of this particular BBC dramatization of Sherlock. This is incredible, right? This is like the dark matter of human creativity. The <laughs> stuff that's produced on this system dwarfs every single trade paperback, every single movie script. This is where people are telling stories in the world. Uh, the stories are also strange, right? So. Um, uh, people use this. In fact, there's a lot of innovations that come out of it. You may have heard of trigger warnings, right? Like trigger warning microeconomics, right? Um, trigger warnings, and more seriously, trigger warnings are things that are appended to the beginning of something that say, you know, warning, this will discuss uh, sexual assault, for example, like so, or this will discuss addiction. So if there's a trigger for you, don't read it. Uh, people make fun of trigger warnings. I don't think they should. Um, it was invented in the 90s in this community. One of the reasons is that people use these stories to work out some of the most profound events in their lives. So people will write stories about sexual assault uh, in these worlds that are working out some of their own stories in their own lives. They'll write stories about addiction, they'll write stories about depression, mental illness. Um, they're also, as I mentioned, people who write erotic works. Uh, and so one of the most common things that people are attracted to uh, when they write this stuff is uh, erotic pairings between two male characters in a story. This is odd. Um, most of this fiction is written by heterosexual women, so what's going on? Uh, there's a wonderful article in a feminist journal, whose name I have briefly forgotten, um, that says, okay, why do this? Well, take Kirk and Spock, right? This is really interesting. Kirk and Spock are very different characters, right? Kirk is the sort of wild, passionate one. Spock is the kind of intellectual, kind of rational, mildly autistic one. So these are different, the characters are different, so there's the erotics of difference, but they're also equal, right? You can't have the Enterprise without Kirk and you can't have the Enterprise without Scott. 
So this is a way for, um, in particular, women to tell stories, to tell uh, sort of erotic stories, uh, without the sort of standard power dynamics that you get where you know, there's an older man or a younger woman, a powerful man and a weaker woman. So this is a different kind of story. When I interview people who write these, um, one of them said, she just said, look, no one's writing pornography that I want to read. No one's writing these stories, right? The standard romance novels don't fit this pattern. Um, you can see a couple things, in fact. So Sherlock and Watson are obviously another great pairing that people eroticize. Uh, and uh, they've invented something called male pregnancy. So one of the characters magically becomes pregnant and carries a baby to term. Uh, again, these are characters who have some equality to them, right? Like Watson isn't forced to do the dishes. Um, so we can do the same, right? String theory, French Revolution, let's do it to fan fiction, right? So we look within these communities and we look at the stories they write and we ask exactly the same question, right? Somebody writes a story within a particular fandom, it's called. Someone writes a story within a particular fandom. What happens to it? And in particular, what happens to it as a function of the novelty that's happening, right? So um, here we go. So uh, Elise does her graphs a different way, uh, unfortunately, but I can't, you can't tell graphs since anything. Um, now what we have here is um, uh, we also have a measure of how much people like it. So we don't just have how new it is and how transient it is, but we also have what they, in this community they call kudos. Right? So you read a story, you click this button that says, great story. We also have the number of reads. Yes, sir? Question on that then. So is transience in this context like whether or not the, the topic sticks around, mm -hmm. yeah. as opposed to, and so there's an inherent measure of people liking it mm -hmm. in in the transients, right? So yes. if, if it sticks around, people liked it. If it doesn't, people didn't like it. Exactly. And so this is another dimension of, of kind of social approval or social. Right. Like I might not like it, but replicate it anyway. Right. Um, sure. So for example, so in that here's a sort of um, kind of a joke story. Uh, in the string theory case, right? So who's out and who's out in the high novelty, low transient spot? It's Princeton University Institute for Bent Study, very high social power group. Um, what's in the kind of conservative spot? So high, uh, low novelty but low transients. That's, for example, Indiana University, safe but solid, right? They're doing stuff that's pretty much like what's come before, but they're judging the field correctly. They're, they're picking subjects that are going to be sticking around. Um, then you have like, okay, who's high novelty, high transients? One of the groups is at Penn State. And then there's sort of this awful chunk, right, which is the high novelty, high transients, and I won't say who that university is. Right? Um, so Indiana doesn't get a lot of citations, but they also have low transients, mm -hmm. right? So you could be part of the inertial center and nobody respects you. In fact, uh, we find the opposite in string theory. So if you are, sorry, the opposite in fan fiction. So on the x-axis here is Colback Library Divergence. Uh, Z-scored. On the y-axis here is the log base 10 of the kudos, so how many people click like. And uh, all these curves essentially say that the newer you are, the less people like it, right? And it's a huge effect, right? So you go a couple standard deviations out from the most uh, inertial stuff, and you drop by maybe one or two orders of magnitude in the number of likes you get. So there is a huge penalty to people moving away from what other people are doing. It makes sense, actually, so question, right, why is this different for string theory, right? So if you look at the, you know, the highest cited papers in string theory are way out of the novelty curve, many different reasons. Uh, one thing that people have talked about is that physics has an institutional structure. So you can do physics and break the rules and you still have a physics department. 
This is a self-constituted culture. And so without that inertia, there is no discussion. There is no thing that other people know to go to. Um, we see this, so everybody, everybody at Rickard does their graphs a different way. So here's the, um, here's in, this is physics. Here is the citation percentile, and here is the resonance. Uh, so that's novelty minus transient, and you can see it goes way up. So this is the opposite of that. Yes? So, so uh, what's the notion of canon here? So, can, mm -hmm. uh, so canon is the high transient, low novelty here. Uh, it's the thing, the base around which everyone can agree and is always there. High, uh, so low novelty, low transient. transient low, yeah, yeah, low yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, that, that's what people reward in, in yeah. fan fiction. So canon. Canon. And in, so canon, so like male pregnancy, you know, Holmes and Watson love canon. So very different from the original story. Because, I, I, partially because the Star Wars, mm -hmm. uh, uh, yeah, I do have background in user-generated content. So. Ah, yeah, yeah, that's yeah, great. Okay, yeah, great. So, yeah, yeah. so part of what happened to the Star Wars community is this thing called canon mm -hmm. got defined. Yeah. And it anchors the whole darn thing now. Mm -hmm. And you can you see on the discussion groups mm -hmm. that they say, well, according to canon, right, right, and that that's over and over again according to canon, mm -hmm. and it's a way of dismissing a lot of the novel fan fiction as well, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Um, so we don't. It's it, I said it's funny. Um, I'm not even sure if Star Wars is on the archive of our own. Um, there's no attention to canon, at least in the stuff that I see. Uh huh. Um, there's. But at the same time, it's not this crazy high novelty stuff. They've just centered it around a different point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Um, but yeah, I know what you mean. So certainly when they, when they hire people to write the new books, yeah, right? Yes. Um, so I don't know. I, we should look. Um, Yishi, or, sorry, uh, Elise has the, she, I think she might have the Star Wars data. It'd be interesting to see um, the extent to which that's really rejecting um, the new stuff as much. Well, well, uh, Wikipedia would be the other place I'd look. Right. Getting there, right? Self-appointed. Yeah. Oh, you're getting there. Yeah, we're getting there. Right. Absolutely. Right. Yeah, yeah. Right. right. Self-appointed, you know, experts. Right. Yeah. 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 Right. Who guard the canon? Whatever. Right. Exactly. This is the, yeah. the verified version. So. Yeah. Um, anyway, so Yuji, uh, sorry, Elise, um, YY, and I wrote this paper together. Um, our title was "Sameness Attracts, Novelty Disturbs." Um, one thing you'll notice here is that this variance is going up, and in fact, that's not variance due to measurement error. That's uh, actual variance in terms of the scatter of the points getting larger and larger. It's not only is that the scatter getting larger, it's a non-Gaussian distribution. And so in fact, the highest ranked stuff, the stuff that even blows away sort of 10 to the four, 10 to the five comments comes from the extreme, right? So people like this, thank you for helping, right? Thank you for keeping this system going. Thank you for giving me what I've come here for. Um, this is death zone, right? <laughs> the mild variation. Um, this reminds me a little bit of academia, right? Don't do a slight twist on the last thing because people will neglect you. They don't want to deal with it. Um, and this is, the, all the extreme events come from here. So uh, we titled the paper, Sameness Attracts, Novelty Disturbs, But Outliers Flourish, right? Um, the, what's out here, so, um, you know, we said, you've got to pull this and just take a look. So one of the most, in fact, the most liked thing on the entire archive is um, a story uh, in the Guardians of the Galaxy universe told from the point of view of the tree Groot. Uh, and it's just the phrase, I am Groot, repeated 60,000 times. So that's an odd one, right? It's almost a joke, right? Of course, it's a complete outlier. No one's seen such a low entropy story. Um, and, uh, but other ones, for example, one of the highest ranked is a crossover between Doctor Who and uh, Captain America. 
right? So these are incredibly novel combinations that people haven't seen before uh, that are the sort of sources, not necessarily of change. So we don't know if after that point, Doctor Who and Captain Marvel stick together to sort of follow your point. We don't know if anyone moves over there, but it's certainly what people love. Yes? Uh, just to re refresh my memory on the setup here. So it's, you, you can only like things, right? You're not giving it a ranking. It's just a thumbs just, up. Yeah, thumbs there up. There's no thumbs up. There's no thumbs up, yeah. Uh, we can also measure it. So there's a couple of there's number of reads, uh, number of bookmarks. So people bookmark them to come back to it, and number of comments. Um, comments, kudos, uh, comments, likes, or sorry, uh, likes, reads, and bookmarks all go together. Comments actually have a different phenomenon. Yeah, the comments structure. That's the only place you can express negative. Exactly. Opinion, right? I think that's right. Yeah. So in fact, we get a different curve there. But don't like this is death sum, right? So you know, Mark, don't do this, right? Don't make a slight. Don't do you know new coke. Right. Um, one more, if we have we have time. So um, it just we just it's so much fun, right? So you just get you take a student, you say, what do what do you want? What do you care about? Uh, so this is Jenny, uh, now a Rhodes Scholar. Uh, so Jenny was in Indiana with with me, and uh, she's a double major in English and mathematics. So uh, she said, okay, let's study Poetry Magazine. Poetry Magazine is uh, from 1912 to it's still going today. Uh, when we're writing this paper, fortunately, you know, poetry critics will say things like. The history of Anglo-American poetry is the history of Poetry Magazine. It's where all of the major poems uh, first appeared. So uh, the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock, T.S. Eliot, is in here. Uh, Sylvia Plath uh, is in here. Allen Ginsberg is in Like, everybody is in here. Uh, what's amazing is that most of the stuff in Poetry Magazine is just terrible, right? It's the worst poetry you've ever read. It's embarrassingly bad. Uh, so this is the first poem in Poetry Magazine. It's a poem about poetry, which is a terror. Never do that. And <laughs> if, you, if you can read this, it's, it's sort of, it's like, it's embarrassing, right? This is, it feels like a pretentious, inauthentic, uh, whatever you like, right? So um, we have 26,000 poems in Poetry Magazine uh, from 1912 to 2000, which is when the system kicked us off from scraping it. Uh, 72 poems make it into the Norton Anthology. So this is the canonical, uh, speaking of canon, right? Yeah, this is the canonical yeah, yeah, yeah. thing that you get taught in school. Uh, these, no one is even close to this number, right? The next poetry journal after Poetry Magazine has like six, right? So this is, in some sense, the, the big story. And of course, like 26,212 minus 72 is a very large number. So we have a sense not only of who wins, who gets the most kudos from the faculty, but also um, what's going on with the conception of poetry at each point. So um, here's the graph that Jenny made. Uh, on the x-axis here is year. On the y-axis here, everyone does axes differently. Uh, on the y-axis here is this is novelty going down. So think of this as similarity. Um, the blue line is uh, the average of all the poems. So take every poem in an issue, look at its similarity to the past, and this window is six months, right? So take all the, you know, poem by poem and average it. That's the blue line. Uh, the red dots are um, the 72 poems that make it into the anthology. So what's happening here, this is actually a system that flips. If you look in the early point, the majority of uh, red dots are below this line. The poems that get canonized from the early part of the century are the ones that look nothing like anything around them, right? Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock is like what, right? Um, there's something really fun that happens in the 1950s, 60s. Uh, two things you'll notice. One is, is that the blue line goes down, 
which means that the whole magazine is going nuts, right? The poems here are much less similar to what's come before. And in fact, they're even much less similar to themselves. So it's not just that they've moved somewhere, but they've also expanded the range. Uh, most of the poems in Poetry Magazine actually come from that era, or most of the canonized poems come from that era. Wait, wait, wait. Is that the Beatnik era, or is it the Vietnam War? That's everything. Um, that's Beatniks. I'll show you a couple examples. Yeah, it's like it's everything. In fact, it's incredibly diverse. Um, and then um, I think there's a new editor, so there's editorial switches okay. that happen here. Um, and then you look in the, in the next half, and in fact, the, the red dots are above the line, by and large. Hmm. So we go from a novelty accepting system to a novelty rejecting system. Uh, of course, the Norton Anthology is published here. So uh, it's in part dictated by the people who are here, <laughs> right? And they like the things that look like the stuff, right? Uh, it's partly due, I think, to the MFA system. So in an MFA, you're taught to write poetry by sitting down, reading a bunch of famous poems, and writing poems that sort of look like it. Uh, the further back you go, people are perhaps more willing to take stuff from here. This is, of course, a sort of value-neutral thing. I'm not saying these are bad or good. I'm just looking at which poems accumulate social power. Um, let's look at a pair of examples. So uh, these are two poems published in the same ear are the same issue. So one is W.B. Yeats near the end of his life. Uh, it's the last volume he ever published in 1934. Uh, poem's called Meru. It's a beautiful poem. Uh, Civilization is hooped together, brought under a rule, under the semblance of peace, by manifold illusion. Right? Actually, it turns out it's kind of the talk, right? Um, the illusion of, of sameness, the semblance of peace. Uh, next to Meru is uh, Robert Ross. You've never heard of Robert Ross. Um, this two-stanza poem is a breakup poem, right? It's kind of embarrassingly bad. Um, let's produce the curves for these two guys. So this black line here is when they're both published, same issue. Uh, this is the year, and this is the similarity. So uh, the red line is Meru, so it goes like this. And the blue line is Robert Ross, goes like this. So what can we see? If you look backwards in time, the canonized poem is much less similar to the past, right? Meru, no one's writing like Meru 10 or 15 years before. It's kind of rising, so the question is, was it Yeats or was he surfing the wave? Uh, meanwhile, Ross is very similar. He's writing a poem that structurally looks like all the poems that have come before. I should say Jenny's not looking at content here, she's looking at stylistic signals, so rhyme scheme, uh, line lengths, word density, things like that. Um, afterwards, what happens? Well, you follow the blue line, right? Ross's style dies away. In fact, Yeats's style peaks. So he writes sort of at the beginning of this wave and 10, 20 years later it peaks. In fact, you go forward and both disappear, such as life. If you look a little bit later, it seems like Yeats is coming back in the late 90s, 2000s. So this is a way to track how influence works uh, this is, you know, Yeats is in that pre-1960s era when people are selecting for novelty. Um, perhaps it's not a secret that Meru is, is making it into the Norton Anthology. Um, at the same time, it looks a little bit like the string theory curve, right? Yeats is uh, high novelty, low transience, and also makes it in to the canon. Story is more complicated. Though, so I said, okay, you inverted you. Um, when you go into, when you look at the individual poems, you find a whole bunch of different patterns. So this is a poem by Robert Creeley. Uh, the blue is the average of poems around him. 
the red is Creeley himself. So you can see here he's got kind of the, the Yatesian curve. He's breaking with stuff from, let's say, 1940. Um, he peaks maybe 1970, and to his style peaks in 1970. But you'll notice he actually goes up really early on. Um, what's happening there, you can think of this as, as Creeley reviving this older pattern. Uh, in fact, he's reviving, in some sense, Pound's imagism. He's, he's writing in a sort of compressed, uh, crystalline style that we hadn't seen for many, many years before. Uh, the most interesting curve for me is this one. It's the poem The Bean Eaters by Gwendolyn Brooks, which you might have read in, in high school. It's, it's one of the most famous poems. Uh, it's a beautiful poem. And her curve is actually the exact opposite of Yates, right? Brooks is writing like things that look backwards. And when she writes, she writes like nothing that comes next, right? So what's going on? Uh, there's a number of different stories to tell. One is Gwendolyn Brooks is the first black woman poet to make it in a major way within Anglo-American poetry, at least the elite in Anglo-American poetry. And one thing you might say is in order for her to make it in, she has to pass a gatekeeper. And that gatekeeper is going to take poems from an unknown source or from a source that doesn't look like other people that look like poems. If you don't look like a poet, you have to write like a poet. Um, of course, what we don't see here is the subject matter. So Brooks is taking this older style, but of course what she's doing is stuffing something incredibly different into it, right? So she's bringing in the black experience, the American South, and something that we've never seen before. But stylistically, her curve is the opposite of Yeats. Yeats can innovate, and Brooks has to, in some sense, ratify what's happened in order for that poem to be accepted. Um, all right, so summary so far. Um, I guess, do people know Calvin Ball? The Calvin and Hobbes thing, right? Calvin, it's like the game is, the rules constantly change. The, the, the reason that we reject novelty in part is that if, every, if everybody accepts it, if we're all super novel all the time, it's Calvin Ball. We have no stability around the system, right? Somehow we need to learn the expectations to bring, to bring it to your, your question. We need to learn those expectations in order for us to have a community sufficiently cohesive that we can do something together. So um, this is, I, you know, the title of this talk was, you know, where does novelty come from? Where does newness come from? And what do we do when we get it? Um, I told you what we do when we get it. Um, so I'll now go to the first part. Where does newness come from? Um, if you are an academic, um, you think that great ideas come from uh, cooperation, right? We all sit around. This is the, uh, the, this great conference in Brussels where they sort of you know, put, straight, or put uh, quantum mechanics together. You know, they're all friendly. Nobody hates anybody else in that room. Uh, we work together. We sort of boost each other's ideas. We, we're polite. We're friendly. We help the grad students. Um, that's our general image of the world. Um, let me dig a little deeper. Has anyone gone through peer review? Right? So here's peer review. Uh, this is a paper I wrote in physics when I was uh, actually my first year of my postdoc. Um, and I wrote it with uh, Chanda, who's an amazing scientist, now also faculty. Um, so, you know, we did this thing, we took on this big theory, we showed that there were these mathematical inconsistencies. Uh, I should have expected that they would send it to the guy whose theory it was. Uh, so here is, here is, I guess I can, this is a quote from my referee report. Uh, this manuscript in several instances provides observations that are better suited for a coffee break. I could give an ultra-long list of examples. Uh, he never did. Um, but uh, in the end, actually, uh, we, we ended up publishing it. Uh, and in fact, I met him. I, it was obvious who it was. And so I happened to be in Rome, and I, I sort of rang him up. And he said, ah, Simon, I confess I wrote that report. 
Um, so uh, we have a sense that maybe this kind of conflict is part of what, you know, this is a healthy field, right? Physics, high energy physics is a reasonably healthy field. We have a sense that this kind of conflict, and in fact with the institutions designed to protect people from uh, this, right? So I didn't know who this was. I could tell just by use of definite articles that he was Italian. But uh, I couldn't really tell who it was. And when, in fact, when I met him, he was very surprised. I thought you were some like old, important guy, and you're nothing. I feel terrible. So what, what, this, what he's done, what this system has done is, in fact, insulate right, us from any kind of social context, any kind of instinct towards altruism or cooperation, and enabled us to just bang it out. right? Um, I guess you guys are familiar with this. This is like the free market, right? This is adversarial legal processes where it doesn't like you're never in a position if you're a defense lawyer, you're never in a position to say, you know what, you have a good point, like my client did it, right? Like it's, it's a conflict all the way. And in fact, we think that these kinds of conflicts, if we set them up with a correct institutional structure, can produce stuff that we don't see otherwise. I would say peer review uh, is one of the great secrets of modern science. It was, in fact, it goes all the way back to the founding of the Royal Society. I would say when peer review gets broken in a scientific subject, the subject is not long for this world. String theory today is in a bit of a crisis. Uh, it's also completely abandoned peer review. So you can get tenure entirely on non-peer reviewed articles today. So there's something, something has broken. And in fact, what happens is if you have enough social power, you don't have to publish. Everyone thinks you're a genius anyway. So let's do this, let's do Wikipedia. Um, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna sort of give this demonstration and uh, it so will turn out that creation, novelty, is in fact associated with conflict. Conflict is generative. Um, so I, I mentioned at the beginning, I don't know if I made this point well enough, right? Like most of the behavior that I see in the world is not motivated fundamentally, cannot be fundamentally described by a set of preference functions. I think we obviously have some weak ones. Um, so what, like, what is Wikipedia's purpose? Like, what's it meant to, like, no one knows. Um, you know, it's like, what? I, like, no one has any sense of what the preference function is. People have different ideas about it. It's fundamentally one of these playful Star Trek things. Like, let's just create something that no one's seen before, and let's do it together. Um, here is uh, the George W. Bush page. This is the most edited page on Wikipedia. There's 45,000 edits. I started working on this stuff in 2012, which is nice because we just keep getting more so I can test my theories as I go along. Um, this is page-to-page -page surprise. So this is Colback Leibler uh, on the, on the uh, y-axis, and this is time on the x-axis. So uh, let's, you know, what is the, here's a particular version of the page. How surprising is it given the previous version? It looks a bit like a heartbeat um, if we smooth it out uh, this is what it looks like. Uh, you should be able to see chop, right, chop. Right, right. You see these moments where the content and structure of the page changes radically. Um, I don't know, this is Kuhn, right? Everyone loves Kuhn, he may be right on this. Um, yes? Sorry, what's the unit of, of time here? Is it, is it per edit or is yes. it like per day or? It's per edit. Um, so there's, if you were to look at the 45,000 points on the screen, you would see they're not evenly spaced. Right? So there are some points where it accelerates and decelerates, and in fact, we'll talk a little bit about that in a moment. So you see these innovation bursts. So I'll just I'll prove to you that they're real. You just you know you got to check even if you believe Colback Library. So I'll show you the page right before that first one and right after that first one. Uh, here's the page. This is 2004. Or so here's the page right before, and here's the page right after. 
most of the content's actually pretty similar. Uh, the big thing that changes is they start inserting all these controversial things about Bush, right? So before, it looks a little bit more like an Encyclopedia Britannica article, uh, neutral, but also avoiding sort of things that might anger people. Uh, the switch after that innovation spike is a battle out of which results in sort of controversies about Bush, right? These are so mild compared to the controversies we have today, it's like a different era, right? Like, he was arrested for DWI in 1976, right? It was uh, sort of, you know, it's nostalgic now. Um, we can measure conflict, right? So obviously I was in conflict with Giovanni about that paper. Uh, it's conflict in Wikipedia is actually quite public. And one of the best ways to track it, some good qualitative evidence for this from other researchers, is something called a revert. So, okay, here is, obviously this page is not gonna be uncontroversial. Um, we can look at the history of this page, so the edits people have made over time. So here we are, this is the edit history. It goes um, backwards and, sorry, um, uh, forwards in time is this way, going up the page. So um, I'll zoom in here. Um, this edit here and this edit here are called a revert. So what a revert is, it turns out there was an accident of the software that you can hit sort of control Z or undo on what somebody has just done, right? So I come in, I edit like the Harvard Business School page and then you know, the dean comes along and says, nope, and he does undo. Uh, reverts are considered an aggressive act within Wikipedia. There's strong norms against them. Uh, to give you a sense of why a revert is a bad thing, imagine you're working with your student. Um, he sends you his paper, you make a lot of edits, you send it back, and he says, thanks, I've rejected all your edits. So this is task conflict, the sociologists say, and task conflict leads to relationship conflict. Um, you can look, right, so um, where is this? Uh, uh, sort of three minutes before midnight on the 28th of November, the user Schmooth comes in and he says, I added a small paragraph explaining what the conflict is actually about as the current article fails in this most basic of tasks, right? So this is not gonna be an uncontroversial edit, and in fact, three minutes later, this guy shows up and hits Control-C. Um, we can take the uh, Wikipedia system, we can take a particular article and generate a time series. So now we don't care about the content, we just care about whether it was a creative or contributive or changing edit. So an edit that changes the page to something new or a revert edit that takes it back to a previous version. So this is actually the time series for the George Bush page. But you'll notice this is the first thing that, you know, the guy created something, created the page, and someone edited it. You'll notice that the third edit's actually a revert, right? So it's not starting well. Um, if you look at this, there are in fact actually, um, uh, there are in fact patterns in this system. This is not just a sort of random probability of, of a revert. So we'll ask the first question, what's the relationship between novelty, I guess innovation, and distance to that previous revert. Like, how far am I away from a conflict in the past, and how does that co-vary with the novelty of the edit that I make? And if you do that, you find a negative relationship, right? So the closer you are to a point of conflict, right, the lower the surprise of the page, and it changes by about half a bit, right? sort of half a yes-no question. Uh, you know, maybe five or six steps away, then, okay, it sort of flattens out. So this is maybe the time scale at which conflict appears to suppress creation and the sort of time scale for people getting over it. Yes? So you keep calling some of these changes innovation, which yeah. I'm just curious, how much of the surprising stuff mm -hmm. is in response to new information and mm -hmm. how much of it is as in that one W edit you showed, mm -hmm. reframing 
well-known uh, information. So the reframing right. sounds a lot more like innovation than responding to information that's from the outside. In. It, yeah. it seems like these would lead to different patterns. Yes. So yes, that's coming. Um, one of the things that's surprising is that Wikipedia is actually not particularly responsive to news. Um, yeah, people will put news events in, like a plane crash, for example. Obviously, this gets created in response to an event. Um, when we look for spikes of innovation uh, in a page, we can't really tie them to any event in the news. So like the Argentina page had a spike, right? What caused the spike? Well, there was no election. There was basically nothing. It wasn't even a football match. Um, it looks like somebody came in and was like, you know, the way in which the role of the Jews in, in, in Argentina has been portrayed is inaccurate or insufficient. So then they come in and write it. So it, it, there's a lot of endogeneity to how this system is, is creating. Yes. Could you control with Google, like Google yep. searches? Yep. Yeah. So that's so what we look for is, well, so not like so we did Google News. news right? Yeah, 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 sure, yeah. Sure. we did news. And so I'll, I'll, I'll give you a little bit on this. Right. So in the aggregate. Right. OK. Conflict is bad. That's maybe the sort of friendly version of the world, like the, the you know, what your middle school teacher tells you. Um, the story is slightly more complicated because we ran this time series through what we call a hidden Markov model. So what we did was try to model the different patterns of interaction. You'll notice in this, blue, um, in this blue zone here, you get these sort of long strings of cooperation with occasional interruptions by a reverb. In the red zone, you get much more of this RC, 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 RC pattern. Right? And if we stick this in, so hidden Markov models are fun. I won't go too much into them. But you can imagine these are, the system can be in a bunch of these different states. When it's in one of these states, it tends to, the system tends to, let's say, cooperate. Those are the yellow states. When it's in a blue state, it tends to revert. And what happens at this point dictates what happens next. So you can imagine systems like happy, happy, ah, happy, right? It moves around. Um, you'll notice I've drawn the arrows here. The heavier the arrow, the more likely the transition. And what we discovered, in fact, was the system tended to partition into two very different conflict patterns. So you're in this state here. You might be in this state for years. And then at some point, you flip over to this state here. This represents one kind of pattern of interaction. This is a second kind of pattern. This was surprising to us. This is a two-phase model. Of, and it shows up in every single Wikipedia page we can find. Uh, these are the top uh, 10 of them, right? So the Bush page, Wikipedia itself, Michael Jackson, uh, Islam. In each of these cases, the system can, can uh, demonstrate one of two interaction patterns and it can persist for hundreds of edits thousands of edits uh in some cases years and even in one case a decade so you had a question no. or no okay very good a um, couple things about these patterns of interaction when you're in one state things happen quickly when you're in another state they happen slowly we'll sort of call them type one and type two conflict so when you're in type one conflict or when you're in type one conflict pattern uh, things can be, you know, sort of 10 to the 5, 10 to the 6 seconds, sort of on the order of months. When you're in type 2 conflict, things happen rapidly on the order of minutes and seconds. Click, click, click. So uh, what do these look like? I said they're sort of uh, these two modes that the system can be in have different patterns. Uh, if you're a game theorist, you'll love it, right? So uh, type 1 has sort of these long strings of cooperation, but also these long strings of, of retaliation. So this is like, yes, 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 no, get out, get out, get out, get out, a little bit like your canon. Um, over here, you can think of this as rejected proposal. 
So in this case, you get these alternations, and you can think of this as, how about this? No. How about this? No. So type 1 conflict, right, which is this sort of long strings of C and then long strings of R, type 1 conflict and type 2 conflict are in fact very different. They have different statistical patterns. They're slower. Type 1 is slower than type 2. Type 2 is very rapid. Um, let's break it out. It will turn out to be what the economists call an ecological fallacy because in fact type 1 conflict has much higher innovation rates than type 2 conflict. So you can think of when the system is in that type 1 state, fights, it so turns out, are actually good. So the aggregate statistics, the further you are away from a fight, the more, the more novel the page can be. But when you, uh, when you uh, discover the existence of these two kinds of patterns, you now find that when you're in the type 1 conflict, the novelty is higher. And in the type 2 conflict, um, it actually doesn't really matter how far away you are from, from the flashpoint. The thing is, is that the conflict here is so high that when you average these together, you get this flip. But breaking it out, you might say, look, there's a better way to fight, or there's a better and a worse way to fight. Uh, in the type 1 case, conflict predicts innovation. Um, innovation also predicts later, later conflict. So you can think about this, right? You have the fight. You're doing something new. After the fight is over, it tends to stick around. So you have high novelty, low transients. In fact, the resonant page-changing things happen in the flashpoints as long as those flashpoints are a certain kind of pattern of interaction. So that's the healthy academic situation. That's the, exactly, hopefully, right? Right. Um, that's not the tit for tat? Is that the tit for tat? That's, yes, that's tit for tat. That's like, it's like, you write something, I revert. And you're like, you know what? I revert you, right? right? And I'm like, no, 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 I revert you. And that's the, that's the healthier That turns one. out to be healthy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah because, because the, too much conflict gets up, is your second one, where it gets in the way of actual innovation. Exactly. I'm like, how about this? No. How about this? No. That's like the sort of powerful advisor, the grad student keeps bringing new things that keep getting rejected. Or, or mistrust, or something's gotten in the way of... Because uh, yeah. uh, the other yeah. one is healthy. It's healthy because there's long periods of cooperation. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Long periods of cooperation, and then these flashpoints. But the thing is, it's the flashpoints that create the novelty. The novelty. Right? That long period of cooperation is peaceful, but also more less interesting than what happens yeah. at those flashpoints. But within that period. Within that, exactly, within that type. So um, information uh, is present, uh, it's created, it's no like more likely to disappear, so we think of this perhaps as this adversarial yeah. innovation range. Um, I, you know, data science, hard to do intervention, so the question is which direction <laughs> is the cause, right? Does innovation cause this kind of type one conflict or does type one conflict enable it? I don't have to do cause, all right. Okay. So great. Uh, that, that solves one of the open questions. So let me. I'll just. Uh, I'll just finish here. Um, it's sort of two things, right? One is the social question, right? When do systems accept new stuff? How do systems treat new stuff? What are the institutional constraints on the acceptance of novelty? And then, of course, the flip side is what are the institutions that promote it? What are the things that make it possible for people to create? What are the micro events that enable novelty to be created? So. Thank you very much for coming. Yeah. Yeah.